Good evening and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow our podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. As always, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to like, follow, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the Megaphone app. Subscribing is free and keeps you up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news and analysis. On tonight's show, we will be recapping one or two free agency signings and continuing our analysis of some of the NHL team's off-season trades and free agency acquisitions as a more holistic review. We've talked about both the Avs and the Jets, but the rest of the Central Division is something of an unknown right now. Before then, though, there were a couple of additional free agent signings and a couple of contract extensions that I thought would be worth covering just because some of them are a little bit interesting and amusing. The first First one that, of course, everyone seems to be talking about for some reason is Cody CC going to the Pittsburgh Penguins for one year at $1.25 million. CC's last few contract comparables are all some form of Lucas Abisa, which is really funny when you think about it. The thing about CC is that he's not particularly capable of transitioning offense, moving up the ice in possession, or generally creating much in the way of offensive zone opportunities. So you're probably signing him with the expectation that he can contribute in some defensive capacity, but I'm not really sure if that's going to happen. He was alright last season with the Leafs, but I don't know if he's actually going to be able to do that with the Penguins. I think Cody's biggest issue is that if he has to log a lot of minutes and he's asked to assume a lot of responsibilities, I think that's going to be overwhelming. In a third pairing role, I actually think CC does have some potential NHL value. I just don't know why you would really spend 1.25 on him for a year when you probably have somebody in-house that you could give a shot and see if they're capable of doing the same job for a cheaper price. Like the best case scenario for Cody is that he's a decent 5 or 6D. The worst case is that he's basically unplayable and you've basically signed more Jack Johnson. For what it's worth, I don't think he's going to be as bad as Johnson was. I think he'll be alright. I don't think he's going to be great, and he might even be, like, bad, to be honest, but he won't be as terrible as Johnson was. On the other end of the blue liner spectrum, we have Matthew Grizzlick signing for four years for $14.75 million with the Bruins. And he's kind of a more new-agey defenseman in that his whole thing is creating defense through offensive zone possession. This is the more modern philosophy of, of defense through offense, which I think is how more NHL teams should do it. I think the challenge for a lot of teams is that not that many actually have rosters capable of doing this. Back when Winnipeg was rolling over teams in 2017-18, that was one of the best teams that could really exemplify this whole desire to essentially dominate defense through really strong offensive zone possession and constant offensive pressure. The Bruins in some ways have a similar approach, although I think that the way that they create offensive zone possession is a little bit more physical and with a bit more grit. Now that's not to say that they don't have a ton of high-end skill because they do, and I think that actually they have so much skill that it goes under the radar. But the Bruins' top six is immensely talented. They play a really good aggressive style. They like offensive zone possession and domination. They like really dangerous cross-seam passing. And Grizzlick kind of fits their mold of how they like to attack space. So I feel like this is a good contract. I think that they got fair value on it. And for paying him a little bit more than $3 million per season, probably close to around 3.5 per year, I think that that's a pretty fair contract for a guy who's easily a top-four defender. Don't think you can really argue with that. Moving on to some of the forwards, we have Quinton Byfield signing his ELC with the LA Kings, I believe it's a max deal, for naturally three years at 10.725 mil, which is, of course, what you'd expect him to sign a max deal for. 
I have a lot of expectations for Byfield long-term. He will probably take a little bit of time to acclimate to the NHL level and may need a year of development before he's really ready for pro duty, but I feel like this kid has all of the tools, many of the raw physical tool sets, and, you know, obviously a lot of high-end offensive skills that'll make him a completely dominant threat at the NHL level. Give him enough time, and I think Byfield will start to look more and more like Evgeny Malkin as time goes on. He's got incredible patience, he's very smart with the puck, and I feel like even though he's not an overly physical player, he knows how to shield the puck effectively, and he can use his large frame to open up spaces that don't typically exist for smaller forwards. Byfield is a really strong skater too, and I feel like he just has all of these tools that, given enough time and development, will make him one of the best franchise centers in the league. When there was talk of taking Stutzla at second overall, I kind of balked just because you don't really pass up on somebody like Byfield. If you're going to take one player at second overall, it's got to be Quinton. I mean, this guy just seems to dominate wherever he's been, and I feel like once he moves out of the CHL, people will begin to understand just why he's such an electrifying prospect. In terms of other forward re-signings, we also have Andrew Mangiapane signing for two years at $4.85 million with the Flames, and this is a completely earned, very warranted extension. I'm a huge fan of Mangiapane. I like the way that he plays the game. He's not exactly a huge forward, but he's very skilled. He's a very nice 5v5 play driver with a pretty good shot, and I just feel like he always seems to find spaces where he can be an absolute nuisance. I think he's playing right now somewhere in the middle six, and at times I think he's been paired with Dylan Dubé, and that's just a really good recipe for fun. If that eventually becomes like Calgary's second line, I think that you're looking at a really good, exciting offensive duo right there, and it doesn't really matter who the other winger is. You can basically fit anyone alongside Dubé and and Mangiapane, and I think that they're going to feast. The final extension that we'll cover is one that's very interesting, and that is Anthony D'Angelo signing for two years at $9.6 million total. Of course, Anthony is a little bit different. He is a defender, and I don't love him 100%. I mean, there's obviously reasons why people kind of despise D'Angelo, mostly for personal stuff. But as far as, like, his on-ice performance is concerned, I'm just not a big fan of his game. At times, he can be an effective offensive defenseman, but I don't really care for some of his overall on-ice impacts. I feel like defensively, he's a little bit mediocre. Like, he can definitely create offensive opportunities with good passing, good vision, and a decent shot, but I kind of agree with the Rangers not really signing him long-term. I feel like two years is a decent bridge. I mean, it's definitely a higher AA but it's not the worst and I think it's a good decision not to commit to him long term. You don't really know if what he's doing on the ice is exactly sustainable so maybe signing him to a shorter term contract and seeing if he's actually worth extending for a long term deal makes more sense and also you can kind of expose this contract to you know Seattle next season. I'm sure the Kraken would be interested in bringing on somebody who has D'Angelo's age and total impact on the ice as a younger defender on an expiring contract that they can then essentially negotiate an extension not too long after that on a deal that makes more sense for what he brings. They did something similar with Alexander Georgiev, who they signed for two years at $4.85 million, so obviously the Rangers are starting to think a little bit more about the long term and how to deal with that, and you can already see them lining some chips up for Seattle to take, and guys who may be a little bit overrated and maybe they couldn't really find a good trade partner for, but they can get Seattle to take these players off their roster instead of some of the guys that they would rather keep around. Speaking of moving players and rosters around. Up next, we will take a look at a couple of Central Division rivals and see how their teams now stack up after the quarantine break, so to speak.
Before then, though, if you are a veteran listener, you know that I definitely like Built Bars, and I've been a fan of theirs for some time now. But like any product, they're always looking for new ways to innovate and improve, and Built Bar is now back and better than ever with a brand new formula and several new flavors. Six new flavors join the original 12, including Caramel Brownie, Cookies and Cream, Cherry Barcia, Lemon Almond Cheesecake, Carrot Cake, and Apple Almond Crisp. If you've never had a Built Bar, it's the perfect alternative to the usual dry and boring protein bar because it's coated in dark chocolate, has a soft, chewy interior, and is more like a candy bar. Of the OG flavors, I recommend raspberry and mint brownie. Those were among my favorites, and I think you'll enjoy them too. The best part is that you can enjoy them guilt-free. Most of them are 200 calories or less, with around 5 grams of net carbs and 15 to 19 grams of protein. They're low-calorie, low-sugar, high in protein, and high in fiber, so they're perfect for keto diets and those on a weight loss or weight maintenance program. To get started, go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON, and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKEDON for 20% off at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked on Winnipeg Jets podcast. We are continuing our coverage of some of the team improvements and offseason moves that the NHL has made. And right now we are focused on the Central Division, which is, well, at least for the season after next, most likely going to apply to the Jets. Next year, maybe not so much, considering, you know, there's going to be a a Canadian division of some sort, which seems like the current arrangement proposal. I don't know if it's going to happen 100%, but it seems like what they're talking about so far. First, though, let's take a look at the St. Louis Blues and see how they did, which they've had a a very interesting offseason to start. Uh, I think that their biggest move, of course, is signing Tory Krug for seven years at $45.5 million, which is, in all fairness, not a bad contract. I think the thing with Krug that you maybe are a little bit concerned about is the fact that he is an older free agent D, and while he is still very effective and a nice top four blue liner, I'm not sure about his average annual value and his total cap hit. What I see Krug as being is like a really good number 3D, and surely the contract is not too bad, but it is seven years with a pretty good price tag in term. You know, it certainly runs until he's 36, which is actually not that bad. I I, I kind of look at the Krug deal as, as far as free agent big D signings are concerned, very fair. Oftentimes with big free agent signings, you have a huge UFA tax, but Krug didn't really come with that this time. As far as filling in the boots of Alex Petrangelo, I'm not 100% sure Krug is going to be quite on the same level because when Petrangelo's at his best, he is seriously one of the best blue liners in the league. Obviously, Yossi was kind of on a different level this year, but Petrangelo wasn't far off, and in previous seasons, he's been like a Norris runner-up. That's a guy who, even though he is getting up there in years, continues to be one of the most dominant top 4D in the league. Krug, I'm not 100% sure, is quite on that level, although I think he's still very good. It's more like a question of just how good is he in comparison to somebody who, through much of his career, was often a top-pairing defenseman. Aside from Krug, they did bring in another more impactful free agent in Kyle Clifford for two years at $2 million, and actually that's a pretty fair deal. Clifford is one of those depth players who I think gets a little bit overlooked, but I think what Clifford does is just be a nice two-way defensive forward. He's not somebody who's going to put in tons of uh, tons of points and certainly a lot of offensive impacts, but he's someone who can grind out possession, you know, create a nice forecheck, offer a decent defensive outlet, and work at either even strength or on the PK. And for two years, for just $2 million, I feel like that's a very good value contract. He's not exactly somebody that I would be racing out to sign, but as far as depth signings go, you could do a lot worse than Clifford. 
Looking at their 2020 draft results, there are a couple of project players like Dylan Peterson and Leo Loaf who might be interesting down the road, but of course the more immediate prospect that may jump out is Jake Neighbors. Neighbors has been a pretty good play-driving wing with some degree of physicality and a decent release that's been getting a bit of praise while working with the Edmonton Oil Kings. He's got a pretty well-rounded tool set, even though he may not be 100% elite at one particular thing, but he's got a really nice, well-rounded approach, and I feel like his game would be a good fit for how the Blues play. They like a nice physical forecheck with somebody who's not afraid to mix it up down near the net and has at least an above average release to get in close and score those opportunities, which it sounds like Neighbors has that kind of tool set, and he seems like the kind of player that the Blues will love, especially if he develops and hits a ceiling down the road. He projects somewhere between like a second liner and maybe a high-end elite third liner, but I would expect the Blues to be thinking he'll be a top sixer at some point. He's definitely been a prolific scorer at the CHL level, so if he continues to track positively and continues to mature his game, maybe eventually he finds himself on a first line somewhere. Looking at the Blues offseason, I'm going to give them kind of like a B plus maybe. I don't know if it's uh, the kind of offseason that I'd be thrilled with. I think losing Petrangelo is a surprisingly big blow. Resigning Justin Falk earlier in the year kind of put them in a position where they didn't really have a whole lot of cap room to bring back their captain, which, you know, for obvious reasons, not really a fan of. I like Krug, and I think that it's a smart value signing, but as far as D are concerned, I'm just not really sure that Krug is going to be equipped to handle the giant vacuum that Petrangelo's absence will now create. Tori is still good and productive, but certainly he's not super young, and he's definitely not quite at the same level of elite caliber defender that Petrangelo was at his best. Still, it's a solid offseason. I think the Blues did about as best as they could given the circumstances. This was a team that just won a cup, so it's not like they have an urgent need to win now. They've already won now, and at this point, they can try and focus on filling in some gaps, working with the roster that they have, and hopefully not signing too many dumb contracts. With their current roster, though, as far as being like a Stanley Cup contender again, I'm not 100% sure that that's going to be happening anytime soon. One thing that does concern me is that Tarasenko has had a lot of injuries over the past couple of seasons, and it sounds like to some degree they are wondering if it's doing long-term damage. They've got plenty of quality players like David Perron and Jaden Schwartz who are very elite in their own respects, but Tarasenko is obviously one of the most gifted goal scorers in this league, and if they lose Tarasenko for continued chunks of time throughout the rest of his career, you have to wonder what exactly the upside of this team is. I think that the way that they play, for me, isn't always sustainable just because, in a lot of respects, they don't create the kind of offensive opportunities that, to me, leads me to believe that they're going to win plenty of games. Yes, they did win a cup playing the style, but Ryan O'Reilly kind of went on a mad one and was just ruthlessly dominant. As far as the rest of the roster is concerned, I think that there is underrated skill there. I'm just not 100% sure if it's enough to win a cup. Obviously, what they definitely need is really good goaltending, and I don't know that they 100% have it yet. If I recall correctly, they do have a couple of goaltending prospects that they are trying to bring along and hopefully fill the gap left by... Well, I guess you can't really say that there's anyone who's been completely amazing in net. They've had a couple of decent goaltenders like Bennington and, and some other guys who have come in. You know, Brian Elliott obviously used to be good, maybe not so much nowadays, but... It's been a while since they've had a really concrete number one goaltender, and I think that that's going to continue to be a problem, especially if this team ages out and starts to get a little bit not so great. The next team, though, is definitely more in a troubling spot, and we talk about not so great rosters, and this team, yeah, it's the Chicago Blackhawks. In just a little bit, we'll kind of look at why their particular offseason is puzzling and what it ultimately means for their future, because right now it doesn't look particularly bright. 
Welcome back to this closing segment of the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast. We are kind of revisiting some of our off-season grades for the Central Division, and eventually we'll get to the rest of the NHL. But of course, under most normal circumstances, the Central Division is the one that pertains to Winnipeg the most. If you've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast or even earlier in this episode, you know that, of course, next season we may see the development of a Canadian division, which would totally change who Winnipeg's opponents are. But let's just assume for now, Central Division after this year or next year is going to be what we stick with. The Blues didn't really improve, but did okay to try and fill in some gaps. The Jets didn't really do a whole lot to improve other than bringing in Paul Stastny. And of course, the Colorado Avalanche were probably the most improved team after dealing with this next squad, the Chicago Blackhawks. When you look at where Chicago is right now, it's kind of clear that, of course, they need to rebuild and they've definitely gotten older. But I think what the biggest concern is, is that Stan Bowman doesn't really know what he's doing. His biggest offseason move was turning Brandon Saad and I forget who else into Anton Lindholm and Nikita Zadorov. And, and neither Zadorov nor Lindholm are particularly great blue liners. Lindholm might actually be better by virtue of not being Zadorov, and I think that that kind of speaks to why Nikita is a bit of a problematic blue liner. You know, I get that he is very physical, and he often uses his physicality to great advantage and great effect, especially in sort of bullying other players, but the problem with him is that his defensive awareness and his decision-making are kind of bad. He's not somebody that I feel like you can rely on either at even strength or on the penalty kill, because he just doesn't really have the awareness to make decisions and make them at an NHL speed, especially when he's under pressure. That the Hawks ended up trading away Brandon Saad, who's actually a good quality winger for Zadorov instead, and you know, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. I get that Chicago's blue line is kind of a mess. They definitely need NHL caliber defensemen, especially good ones with skill. Zadorov doesn't really fit that mold. Maybe Bowman feels that this team needs to get tougher, but when you look at guys like Debrinket and what they sort of bring with a lot of skill, you know, smaller stature and, and speed and scoring, I don't really understand how Zadorov kind of factors into that sort of philosophy. In terms of what they got in their draft, honestly, I don't even know most of the prospects that they picked up. The only guy that I could really recognize was, of course, uh, Lucas Reichel from the German League, the DEL. And Reichel was an interesting prospect. He was ranked higher at one point earlier in the season, but he is somebody with lots of potentially good offensive upside, but certainly a lot of work to be done. His approach is one that maybe some would consider a little bit limited and inconsistent, and he will need quite a bit of time to get used to the NHL ice. That said, he's not really the kind of person who's going to be an immediate impact NHLer, and I kind of look at the rest of the roster and think to myself, you know, with the Hawks where they are now, maybe these draft picks aren't going to actually have the kind of NHL impact that Bowman was hoping. In all fairness, Chicago has often gotten by with a lot of lesser-named, you know, NCA prospects and whatnot from different teams that maybe people don't follow as much, but are still decent players in their own right and actually carve out NHL careers of a sort. But I think the bigger concern is that the rest of the team hasn't really aligned to the state where you would think that this team is prepared for a rebuild. Jonathan Taves is kind of upset about it. Apparently the locker room feels like this rebuild is maybe too soon, but I think that the players also know they're getting older, they're not really in a competitive state, and the team probably will need to start making some painful moves to prepare for the future. I just don't really know why you would do the zadorov Sod trade, because if you're going to trade away a really competent middle six winger who maybe has a little bit of a pricier contract, but it's not that expensive, you know, it's like a more Matthew Perot kind of deal, then I just don't really see trading, you know, Sod away for a Zadorov. You can get Zadorovs on the free agency market for almost no money. 
that Chicago traded away a valuable forward of a sort for Zadorov and Lindholm is just kind of galling to me, and I feel like it speaks to the fact that Bowman mostly got lucky when he won his previous Cups. He could identify at least some NHL talent and did well enough a couple of years ago, but those times have come and passed. I don't really know what the next step for Chicago is, but they definitely need to win a draft lotto because their team is getting older, and their best players are definitely kind of out of their primes. You know, Taves is still productive and still good. Of course, Kane is who he is. Their defense is uh, not exactly stellar. They had to dump Ali Mata's contract recently, which is fine. I mean, I like Mata, but of course, I think a lot of people will say he's probably not worth the, the contract that he has. There's just not a whole lot of NHL talent that's surrounding some of their more talented youngsters like Debrinkit and Strom. I feel like they definitely need a talent injection from somewhere, and it's going to have to be drafted prospects. They certainly won't be able to move some of their bigger deals anytime soon, so they're kind of stuck, and I feel like... You know, you trade Sada away for Zadorov, and you're not really improving or stocking up for the long-term future. With just how mediocre everything has been for the Hawks in some of these trades, I'm going to have to give their offseason like a D. It's just not been good. I haven't really been impressed, and I feel like their long-term picture just isn't outstanding. I'm not really sure that anyone out there who has followed the Hawks or does any sort of analysis really thinks otherwise, because to be honest, Chicago just doesn't seem to be making any moves that are particularly sensible. On next episode, we will take a look at a couple of more Central Division teams, including Dallas and the surprisingly forward-thinking Minnesota Wild. For tonight, though, that'll do it for our show. Thank you so much for listening. Before you log off, be sure to check out the Locked On National podcast hosted by Sarah Avampado. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great night, and go Jets go!